Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today we're going to be trying to get to the bottom of a slightly relevant topic. What is happening with the Copa America? Uh, to do most of the legwork on that one, I've got a man who I think is finally calming down after Colombia's 2-2 come, be- come from behind draw last night. It's Felipe Cardenas of The Athletic. Felipe, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And yeah, I did not lose my voice last night. I lost my mind. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what, like I had also lost faith, which I got really, yeah, I lost, I got roasted by my friends in my Colombian WhatsApp because that's, that's what they stick to. Faith is the last thing that you lose when you're supporting your national team. But when you go down to Argentina, when you go down, you know, seven minutes into a game against Argentina, you're down two nil Mm -hmm. and Messi's on the field. It's really tough to be like, we got this. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the game switched, you know, s- some changes from Colombia's um, manager in the second half. He had to make changes. He had to sacrifice defenders and defensive midfielders and bring on more attackers. And honestly, like proud of the Colombian players mentality to come back and tie that match. Huge point. Would you rather be Colombia down 2-0 to Argentina uh, inside of like seven or eight minutes or the United States 1-0 down to Mexico inside of the first minute? <laughs> Similar circumstances, dude. Uh-huh. During that, when when Mexico scored that goal, I thought the U.S. To be honest, I thought they were done. I yep. Really <laughs> yep. I don't really want to betray that. Uh, maybe I lost some faith there too, but it did feel, especially once that second one went in, that ended up being disallowed. I had that saying like, "Uh oh, this isn't good." Yeah, I mean, it, it, I felt like it was going to be a three nothing Mexico win. Yeah. Uh, but again, back to mentality, which is what I was questioning from. The Colombia players, do they have the mentality to look at the Argentina shirt, which can shake any opponent? Um, you've got Messi on the field. Like, what are you going to do? How do you come back? Uh, and to, to, to the Americans' credit, you know, the U.S. men's national team did the same thing. They have, they have a huge rival in front of them. They're down one nothing, and they just kept coming back. So, like, that's why the sport is so awesome. And that's why it's also extremely stressful at times for fans. And when you see your best friend, Tata Martino, are you going to ask him about what went wrong? <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to see Tata again, man. Like, it's tough. Access is, is it's tough for, for reporters these days. You know, you're on, a, you're on a computer. You have to click on an emoji that says raise hand and you may or may not get to ask a question. So I don't know when I'll get to talk to Tata again, but um, I don't know. He, he, I think he's learned some lessons, too. You don't touch referees when they're checking out. <laughs> You in a VAR call. How, he and Burhalter seem to be embracing quite a bit in that little sequence. Are are they friends? Are they pals? Or was that just like two XMLS national team managers just hugging it out while one of them got a red card? I think they're they're close from a sporting sense. Um, it, when when Tata Martino was here in Atlanta, anytime they played against Burhalter's Columbus Crew, he would just rave about the way that the crew played because. You know, it was positional play. It was build up possession, uh, wing play. Uh, they had some good players that really stood out. Um, and Tata would always just really praise Burhalter. And I think it, it's a great question, Taylor, because I think that dynamic between Tata Martino and Greg Burhalter is going to be a storyline anytime Mexico and the U.S. play. Because, you know, as I reported earlier this month, you know, Tata Martino wanted the U.S. men's national team job. He was interested in that job. That was the one that I think he came to the U.S. 
to, to, to win and also to perhaps be in a place where he could take over the U S team. And that didn't happen. Clearly we understand that he ends up coaching the U S's biggest rival. And so now we have these two coaches who like each other, respect each other going up against each other in, you know, the region's like biggest rivalry. So I just think it's fascinating. I think that's what you were seeing. There are two guys that know the positions that they're in two guys that respect each other. Um, and then just kind of like the strange world of CONCACAF all mixed up in there. I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway. If Tata had become uh, manager of the U.S. men's national team, obviously Greg Berhalter is not taking over L3. Do you think there is a world in which at some point a, an American is ever considered for the Mexico national team gig? Or do you think for at least the foreseeable future, that is maybe a bridge too far? It's, I think it's definitely a bridge too far now. And without getting, without stereotyping every country's sort of like nationalistic position when it comes to soccer and rivalries and things like that, like, um, that's just the reality. Like, these are two, you know, big time rivals. It's like, ask, it's like assuming that a Brazilian could coach the Argentine national yeah. team or vice versa. Like, you just, that's not going to happen. Um, but could it happen? Yes. I mean, the, the world is changing. Um, and I just think it's like a huge long shot. And, I, and it would be wonderful to see an American coaching the Mexican national team or vice versa. I think that would be, yeah. just, I mean, for reporting and for journalists and just for the sport. I mean, just imagine what that would be like. That would be insane. I think my assumption is that we would get a, a Mexican person managing a U.S. national team before we would get an American managing a Mexican national team. But I don't really know if that's true either. So uh, I will leave the difficult theoretical questions to somebody else. Instead, we'll talk about difficult theoretical questions relating to the Copa America. Does that sound good? Let's do it. because there's, there's plenty of weird yeah. questions there as well. So uh, when last we spoke, we did a Soccer 101 episode about Copa America, about this iteration. I think at that point, we weren't sure what was going to happen. What we know now is that we still aren't quite sure what's going to happen, but we we do have a strong inclination that the tournament is going to be held in Brazil. To back up for a moment, uh, why isn't the Copa America going to be held in Argentina or Colombia? Yeah, I mean, you go back to, um, you, you know, talking about just, this is a mixture of, you know, COVID-19 realities in South America, political issues and strife throughout the region. Uh, and then the, 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 the continent's biggest uh, tournament and the oldest soccer tournament in the world, which is the Copa America. So all these things come together and you had history um, trying to be made by CONMEBOL, the, the South American governing body, by having to host a co-host in Argentina and Colombia. Had, was something that had never been done before in the, I think it's 114 year history of the tournament. So this was going to be a big time event in 2020. It was canceled because of COVID um, in, in 2020. And then just in the run up to where we are today, you, you could just start to see dominoes start to fall um, little by little as COVID continued to just run rampant throughout South America. They are not in the same situation or the same place that we are in here in the United States where more and more people are receiving the vaccine, have access to the vaccine. Uh, that's just not the case in South America at this time. And so Colombia was essentially stripped. They were stripped of their hosting duties by Comabol because Comabol made the decision that uh, the, the political unrest due to um, the, the current 
administration in Colombia's attempt to pretty much like propose a tax reform uh, that was really going to affect the middle class in Colombia. That led to protests and uh, unfortunate, you know, violent protests throughout the country uh, that is still ongoing. Uh, and then plus you add COVID to that, you know, Colombia is kind of grappling with their own COVID situation and Cobamol decided to take hosting duties away from Colombia. And at the time it was like, all right, so Argentina will be the sole host. But Argentina was kind of like, hey guys, like we have our own problems. And in the end, you know, public health won over in, in Argentina. And it was the government's decision, clearly backed and informed by their health ministry, uh, that this was not a good idea to host the Copa America in Argentina, which are still playing matches behind closed doors, are still canceling tournaments because of COVID. And so then Comobol, 24 hours later, after Argentina pulls out, awards it to Brazil, which is one of COVID-19's hotbeds you know, global hotbeds. Uh, they were backed by uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who is, you know, this kind of controversial conservative president. Uh, you know, Contra- controversial COVID. is certainly a word. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a COVID denier, if you will. And, and, the, and the baby that, flu, is that what he called it? The little flu? It a little flu. Yeah. Yes. Um, and he, he just has not approached or handled the, the, the pandemic well at all. There were protests the week that Brazil was awarded the tournament, um, there were protests in the streets at, from from citizens asking for his, you know, impeachment, and and, and there were you know uh, opposition politicians, you know, looking for for to 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 start impeachment proceedings for Bolsonaro based on what how he has handled this this pandemic. But nonetheless, Conmebol uh, has his backing, and he, the, this tournament looks to be going through in Brazil starting on Sunday. So we should clarify, uh, Felipe does his best on the show to be a professional reporter who remains uh, journalistically neutral. And then I try to ruin that approach by saying things like, isn't he the COVID denier who calls it the little the little flu? And, and that's where we'll take it. Uh, for uh, those countries that we've talked about already, Colombia and Argentina, is there bad blood either for Colombia having it sort of taken away or for Argentina, is there bad blood from Commonwealth for them saying, no, we don't really want to host this one anymore? A little of both, because I, I, this is why the situation was so difficult. And in a story that I wrote for The Athletic before, you know, in, in Colombia's perspective, um, you know, soccer is this great unifier. It's always been the, you know, the way that the country comes together in difficult moments. Uh, you know, I really believe that uh, I, I don't want to say a large majority, but they, the, the Colombians... I think perhaps in general did not want to lose the Copa America because of what that meant. It was like the the dagger, um, you know, in their hearts and really kind of solidifying the situation that the country was in. Uh, But on the other hand, I know from, from, you know, from my family, from my friends in Colombia and just from reading, you know, international press, many Colombians didn't want the tournament either because they felt like this is not the right time to be hosting a tournament. We need to get our, our, our political situation correct. We need to take the pandemics more seriously. We need help. And so, you know, that, that, that kind of led to where we are today. And it's really the sentiment throughout South America and throughout the world, you know, Peru's national team manager, um, uh, Ricardo Gareca, he, he came out and said like, it's unfair to give Brazil the tournament again. They hosted in 2019 they won the tournament in 2019. It w- there were some dubious calls throughout that tournament in favor of Brazil. I mean, there were a lot of memes on social media with Bolsonaro kind of manning the VAR, 
the VAR room, <laughs> like, uh, you know, changing calls in favor of Brazil during that tournament. I think Lionel Messi uh, in 2019 said, you know, when I'm paraphrasing, but it was sort of like Brazil always gets what they want. You know, it's it's when when Brazil in this is in the situation, it's impossible to beat them. And so I think that that's the sporting side of it where people are saying once again brazil who is clearly the best team on in south america it's like brazil and nine other teams there's no doubt about that they have not even lost one game in qualifying they're they're waltzing through qualifying and so there's all these things are mixed together and argentina felt like they you know they want they want to host tournaments too but they made the decision that it was not the right time and so you have all these different factors uh potential a potential boycott that that certainly gained steam um, from Brazilian players and then just kind of died out re very recently and they're so they're going to play this tournament I think this the cloud will hover around the stark cloud of controversy is going to hover around the tournament up until the day it starts on Sunday all the way through to the final on July 10th so I started to laugh a little bit harder at the idea of Jair Bolsonaro uh, reviewing the footage himself or having people do it until I realized that that also maybe does feel like a thing he might actually try to do if it means that Brazil win and his popularity goes up a little bit. Uh, what what do you think will be their approach, Brazil's approach to hosting the tournament? Are you expecting it to be sort of isolated cities and bubbles or do you think there will be more of a disregard, a business as usual approach? You know, well, first of all, Brazil, you know, when they took over uh, right away, several you know governors throughout the, the country were like, you're not hosting here. You're not coming here. Like, we're not allowing this. And so that led to the, you know, instead of being this like massive tournament where remember the World Cup in 2014, like it was like sit 10 cities, if you will, mm -hmm. or more. And you're flying all over Brazil. Brazil is an incredibly massive country. Um, so this time it's just four cities. That's it. It's just four cities because that's all they can really handle. It's going to be behind closed doors. The four cities are all in the interior of the country. Um, and for, for instance, Rio, Rio de Janeiro, where, you know, the famed Maracanã stadium is, and it's like the most, one of the most famous stadiums in the world, they're hosting one game and that's it. And that's the final. Um, and so th that's the way they're going to approach it. Now they've been very adamant, including the president of Comobo, Alejandro Dominguez, and saying that, you know, we were, we're going to have strict COVID protocols. They receive over 50,000 doses of the vaccine and the players are going to be vaccinated. Staffs are going to be vaccinated. But guess what? That, that, that is that's that's adding to the controversy. You're, you're going to vaccinate, you know, millionaire soccer players while the rest of the region and the continent is struggling to get access to the vaccine. Um, but that's the way that they're approaching it. There's going, they, they've even used the word bubble. Um, I don't know if that's, if that's possible. And I don't think that's something that in South America is, 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 is something that they see as just like foolproof. In fact, Argentina, like one of their really demands and conditions of playing in the tournament is like, we're going to set up camp in Argentina at their national team training facility and only fly in for games. So the whole bubble aspect, which was floated out by Dominguez and Brazilian officials that are in favor of the tournament, I think it's it's not that easy to pull off. Um, and you're, I think you're going to see heavy police presence throughout the tournament in case there are disturbances and protests around the stadiums. Uh, it, it's just going to be a, a really strange situation that at the same time, you're going to have these huge global stars trying to win the tournament. 
and that tournament is kicking off very soon. I think the first games are on the 13th. And yet, uh, at least I am still talking about this with an air of uncertainty because there is the challenge that's going before the Brazilian Supreme Court. There is still much unrest and much protest about this tournament happening. It does still seem like it's going to happen. Uh, I, I can't see the Brazilian Supreme Court saying, you know what, never mind, we're going to change everything at the last minute. Felipe, for you, what is your sort of timeline of events? When are you going to feel like, yep, okay, this is definitely happening. It is definitely kicking off on time. Or are you already there? Personally, I'm already there because it's just I, I really think that despite everything we've talked about and and, and the realities of hosting a, a tournament in this in this situation the conditions that the country and the region are in it really seems like they're going they're going to go through with it uh you know barring a complete 180 from the powers that be and they are very powerful people that are deciding whether this tournament is going to go through you know it's going to kick off on sunday with brazil uh playing in the brazilian capital against Venezuela. That's the opening match. Um, and so I, I just don't see it being canceled. I think right now it, it's just become so political. And what you're seeing are the, the opposition party to Bolsonaro's liberal party. So you have the Brazilian Socialist Party. They're the ones that are kind of leading this last ditch you know, march you know, to, to the Supreme Court to get this tournament canceled or, or to at least have a very public review of the way that this tournament was awarded to Brazil. I think that's the, the, the intention. Uh, I think at this point it's just too late. I think this tournament, this Copa America is going to go through. Uh, it's going to be a, a strange one. It's going to be memorable for, for many reasons for it to be canceled. I think you would need like what Brazil's players were really attempting to do to have like this coalition of national teams and star players saying we're out. So see what you can do. But I just don't think that came through. Uh, and so if we're assuming the tournament does happen, uh, I then wanted to ask about the format, because as I understood it, the format uh, initially was rooted in we're going to have two host nations. So we're going to split it in half. We'll have two different sort of semi-group competitions that leads to the final. Does the format change at all now, now that it's only going to be in one country? It it doesn't. I think what, what initially changed the format was before in 2020, like they were going to have um, – you know, Qatar and Australia were going to be part of this tournament, which has become this this trend in Copa America where they invite teams from other confederations. You've seen the U.S. take part in, in, in Mexico and Costa Rica, even Honduras, um, Canada. Uh, you know, they've all kind of been part of this, the, in, the invite list to, to different Copa Americas. But uh, Australia and, and Qatar have since dropped out because they're focusing on, on World Cup qualifying in Asia. And so the format now, it's like kind of like a throwback. Uh, it's just the 10 South American teams, and they're going to be separated into two groups of five. Uh, what, what I think what makes it a little bit like strange is that, you know, the top two teams advance typically in any, in any sort of like group stage knockout type of format. The third, the best thirds replay are, are going going to advance, and so do the fourth seeds. <laughs> so it's like you can finish second to last in your group, and you are going to get through to the mm -hmm. to the court to the knockout stage, which is quarterfinal, semifinal, and final. It's what had to be done when you're going to play in this sort of format. So that that's the only real change. Um, but I think for traditionalists, they'll look at it as like. It's just South American teams. And that, that can be cool. You know, that can be kind of you're, you're going back to the tournament's roots um, in kind of a strange uh, way to do a, 
a strange way to get to that to that place, but it is just the ten South American nations, two groups of five, and then they get to the knockout stages. And when do you think we get our squads? Because as I understand right now, uh, we have provisional rosters for I think Peru. I forget who else has submitted that one, but I think we don't have our full squads yet. Are you expecting that the teams that were in the Copa America, uh, qual- excuse me, in the World Cup qualifying, will basically be the same ones for Copa America? I do, I do. I mean, I think you may see, you know, a, a few players, uh, perhaps that may- maybe they had a, an agreement with their club that after this, you know, th- these two World Cup qualifying fixtures, they were going to go back and, and and you know train with the club or or start their vacation. Who knows? But I really do believe that the the the, the rosters that are taking place in South American. World Cup qualifying are going to be the same ones that are taking part in Copa America. So for for a fan, for for casual fans or even fans of these countries, you know, you're going to get first choice lineups. Uh, I think that was the that was the idea behind, you know, this Copa America staying, you know, staying alive is, is to make sure that other than all the controversy surrounding it, you know, one, you know, I think a, a major blow to the tournament would be if countries said, well, we're going to send our second and third teams, we're going to send our U23 teams. That doesn't look like it's going to happen uh, again barring any last minute decisions which has been part of this process mm-hmm. you know it seems like every day there's there's kind of like a new wrinkle a new controversy uh i think you're going to see every team in south america show up with their top players you know Lionel messi is going to be there you know, the, a very strong argentina team led by him and lautaro martinez on Di maria um you know kun aguero who's not getting on the field in qualifiers but i, I think he'll be part of the group you're going to see Brazil with 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 all of their stars. They have a very deep team, and I think the only star that looks set to miss out, again, barring any last minute changes, is James Rodriguez for Colombia. He was not included. He was not selected by Colombia's new manager, a Colombian manager, Reynaldo Rueda, for these World Cup fixtures due to fitness fitness concerns. Now there was a little bit of controversy there, where where James said that he was. Uh, recovering uh, nicely from a calf, a lingering calf injury. Everton, his club team even sent out like a press release saying that they believed he was ready to go, that they prepared him for the Copa America specifically. Um, and, and so he was kind of, according to him, caught off guard that he was not selected, but he looks to be out for Copa America for Colombia. Um, and I think he'll be perhaps one of the, the only big stars that'll miss the tournament. Uh, and Colombia will be in Group B in the North Zone, uh, so says Wikipedia, alongside uh, Brazil, Venezuela, Ecuador, and Peru. Uh, group A would be Argentina, Bolivia, Uruguay, Chile, and Paraguay. Uh, as you said, Felipe, they are. We have what four of the five advancing to the next round. So is that basically for Group A commiserations to Bolivia, and in Group B, likely commiserations to Venezuela? Yes, I mean those are the tr- traditionally the minnows. But look, okay, Venezuela. Just tied Uruguay, which is yeah, a stacked did. team, absolutely stacked top to bottom, nil nil um, in, in their last World Cup qualifier. I think they were very unlucky to not walk away from three points, Venezuela. Um, and then Bolivia, who is traditionally just the punching bag in South America, they just tied Chile, which is a good team, a team that most South American countries don't want to play against. They still have this very fast pace. Um, system that was implemented by Marcelo Bielsa, uh, you know, back in the day, and they've continued to play this really high pressing. They're just annoying to play against. You're going to have to be, you know, you're going to have to drink so much Red Bull before you play Chile to stay 
at their level. And Bolivia just tied them 1-1. Um, and, and Bolivia also defeated Venezuela. So they came out of the, these two fixtures with four points, which for Bolivia is huge, huge. And so the, the beauty of, of South American qualifiers, of, of South American tournaments, typically is that you just don't know who's going to win, even if you have a top favorite. Um, every team can really battle each other. They know each other so well. Um, you know, Messi does not get the same space that he gets in La Liga. I am sorry, in La Liga, it's like as if they don't want to really touch him unless they play against Real Madrid. But in, in South America, you know, he gets kicked, he gets man marked, he gets triple marked, he, you know, and, and that's the beauty of this tournament where you see these teams that are so, uh, you know, they're, they're so well informed as far as what the other team is doing tactically that, again, you don't always get great soccer because of every, every game seems to be very tactical but you do have really high quality individual players that can turn a game on its head. Overall for Venezuela, what is the sort of situation with their national team at present? I was reading that their former president had been arrested. I believe he died in police custody, likely due to COVID-19 or I guess uh, acute respiratory failure was the diagnosis there. Uh, They have uh, Jose Becero uh, as a manager who last managed uh, sporting in 2018. It doesn't feel like it's the strongest situation around the squad. So are they basically relying on the individuals to, to get a result or have I mischaracterized things with Venezuela? No, you have not mischaracterized it. There was a lot of turmoil, um, you know, even before the pandemic, you know, Rafael Dudamel, who is uh, sort of like a historic kind of figure in in Venezuela as a former player. He was the national team coach up until Pesedo took over. And, uh, you know, there was just, you know, he lost the locker room. Joseph Martinez, who plays for Atlanta United, you know, kind of had a public spat with Dudamel. Uh, and and has since been kind of re-welcomed into the national team. Even he even publicly went. You know, Martinez had a public spat with some of the players, including the, the you know the, the team captain. That has seemed to be re- that's now resolved as Pesedo has kind of taken this approach of just getting this team together because they're a talented team. I think if you look at the roster, if you look at the team, the players that are in MLS, some of the players that are that are playing in Europe, it's it's a it's a quality team from an individual perspective they've just never been able to put it all together and and they're they're not really showing signs of doing that yet so uh but but they're a dangerous team for anyone that they play and and so venezuela is kind of they're not at the dark horse level yet they're not they're not up there to where the people think they're going to make a run you know peru was that sort of team in the last Copa america that got to the final a similar situation where they, you, you know, they're talented, but they don't have this international pedigree. But when they play in South America, they're a team that no one wants to face. And so Venezuela is, I think they're trying to find their identity. Who are they? Um, you know, clearly from, 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 from in their strike force, they have good forwards like Joseph Martinez, uh, young, they're young at the goalkeeper position. Uh, they're, they're fairly young throughout, but they're talented. So, I mean, Venezuela is like the microcosm of what can happen to a national team in South America. Just a lot of turnover, a lot of controversy from the federation level, um, and they're just trying to get it right. So it's a team that, you know, I think they're I think Brazil should kind of handle them in the opening match. But typically, Venezuela is not a team that many, many countries want to face. 
If you're putting the teams that will be participating into sort of categories of relative strength, as we said, Venezuela not necessarily showing signs of putting it together right now. Maybe they will, but uh, like not obvious symptoms. Who are the teams that you think are in the strongest position and then like the most medium position and then maybe the least strong position? I mean, clearly, I mean, just start at the top, right? You've yeah. got Brazil and Argentina. Uh, that was have, my long-winded way of saying, talk <laughs> about Brazil and Argentina for a while. Yeah, I mean, they are head and shoulders above everyone. And I think, you, re- like I said before, you need to separate even Brazil from Argentina. They are too good right now, Brazil. Um, they And they are a, a, really a united team. It's not just, oh, they've got these star players like Neymar, Casemiro, Marquinhos, Paqueta, uh, you know, uh, it's just, you know, star after yep. star after star, Gabby goal, who comes off the bench. Like they've got all these guys that, um, that, th- that are scary to face, but I think this is a team that is together. You know, they like each other. They, they have the backing of, of their coach and, in, in, in Tite, who, uh, is, is sort of his, uh, his own sort of polarizing figure. He's a Bolsonaro opponent. He's a, a vocal opponent of, the president and he has gotten himself in trouble in the last few weeks because you know there were reports that you know many inside brazil politics i'm kind of going on a tangent here but many within brazil have, have denied the reports but it was reported that bolsonaro wanted to remove tite from the head coaching job and 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 place a bolsonaro friendly head coach um in in that position who is renato gaucho who is i think a former gremio coach former player that is not happening. You know, he's, you know, Tite is going to be the coach, but I think that's important to know. This is a team that despite the controversy surrounding the tournament that's being held in their own country, like these guys are together and that's what makes Brazil pretty scary. Uh, uh, isn't that a very good way to get kicked out of FIFA to have a, a president elected president of a country interfering in footballing affairs? I feel like there's supposed to be a very strict separation between those two things. Yes, but you know that that's the the ugly dark side of this this edition of the Copa America. You know, it was reported by some pretty you know uh, well respected journalists in Argentina that the Comable president Alejandro Dominguez ha- held a Zoom meeting. I think it was last week with some of the presidents of other um, other con- of other national team federations. And he included Jair Bolsonaro in this Zoom meeting, which was in, in, which was meant to exert pressure on b- the Brazilian national team in order to get them to walk back their comments about p- potentially not playing. Um, and in that meeting, Bolsonaro had pledged to call the manager, the Brazil manager, and sort of you know twist his arm a little bit. Uh, even that has been since denied by several people within you know Bolsonaro's camp and Comabol, but it was heavily reported. And so that, that, that's, that's just an unfortunate situation, but it says a lot about what has been surrounding this tournament. Um, I do sort of put Bolsonaro, uh, like, I, I know that you are trying, you try to, to navigate these things as best you can. I will say that I put Bolsonaro in a sort of Trumpian category. And with that in mind, do you think he's able to set up his own Zoom calls or do you think he has to have staff do that? Because he doesn't really seem like the type to like really have the patience to figure out the technology. I guarantee someone sets that up. There's no <laughs> doubt. There's no doubt. He just sits at the desk. All right. Uh, uh, I'll, st- I'll stop asking about him. I'll, let's talk about Argentina instead. Yeah. So you said there's like a clear number one in Brazil. So that next year category, is it Argentina by themselves? 
I think so. I mean, you can put Uruguay there as well. Uh, like we stated before, Uruguay is really just a top to bottom, so good um, at, at literally every position. That doesn't just—that's not to say every single position that every single player for Uruguay is this global star. They're just really good. They're really hard nosed. They're typical Uruguay. They have not changed their system or their style of play, but they are just so dangerous in their the way that they play. They are going to sit. They will defend. They will man mark. They will clear and run kickball and do you know the dark the dark arts and all that and then all of a sudden you've got Luis Suarez uh, Edison Cavani just there to punish you um so I I do believe it's like Argentina Uruguay are very close Argentina has Lionel Messi they, they are trying to reestablish themselves with like sort of a younger team they're trying to get away from what what is referred to in South America as the you know Messi dependencia you know this de- this high dependence on what Messi does it's even been referred to that that's what Barcelona has become uh, and, and I think they have the players to do that they have an unproven coach though Luis Scaloni was is not this like very uh, experienced international manager. Um, but so far, you know, they've had some decent performances. In Argentina, the pressure's on, though, because they don't feel like it's a team that is playing to their potential. Uh, it's They are split. I think if you just go on Twitter, some journalists in Argentina are like, it's great to see a team that's not heavily dependent on Argentina. And then you just have other journalists who are like, all we do is try to play through Lionel Messi. Um or I'm sorry, heavily dependent on Lionel yeah. Messi. And then they're still really highly dependent on Lionel Messi, which is just, I'm sorry, that's really hard to 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 not do. Yeah. Um, but but I, I still think that they are going to be a tournament favorite. Um, Uruguay, like I mentioned, you know, I think Colombia is a team that, you know, they have the talent. They do. Uh, but they're going through their own sort of like controversy with ha- having fired Carlos Queiroz. Um, after getting shellacked by Ecuador six one six nothing, you know, so but, but and Hamas, they're not going to have Hamas. So it's like, what happens with Colombia? Can they show up? The young Ecuadorian team, who everyone sort of was praising, you know, in in the last World Cup qualifying fixture, has since fallen off. They're not getting the results that that they once had. Um, and, and then after that, you know, it's, it's Chile, like I mentioned, a, a difficult opponent at, at, in, at any stage in any tournament, uh, Paraguay, who I think when you look at the Paraguayan roster, they're an exciting team. Miguel Almiron, the, the Romero twins who are, are attacking players. They've got solid, solid defenders, hard nosed defenders, but they have an identity crisis. They have a coach that wants to play. They want to keep the ball. They want to possess, they want to attack. But it's like as soon as the, the game kicks off, they revert back to what they're used to, which is defending, long ball, attacking through the counterattack. Um, and, and then finally, like we mentioned, Bolivia, Venezuela, and Peru are teams that are just – I think they're just going to try to to survive in this tournament and, and get some results. You know, Peru's coach is on – is Ricardo Gareca is on the hot seat. He, they just got their first win in qualifying last night. Um they're in last place. Uh, the, the patience is running thin in that country as well. So this is the type of tournament that, that, you know, you, you could see managers fired at the end of the tournament. It's, it's that sort of situation. Of the maybe top five or six national teams, who, which manager do you think is in the most precarious position? Which one would you be least surprised to see fired at the end of this tournament? Wow. 
You know, I'm going to say it's Brazil's head coach, honestly, just because of the the political situation that he is in. They could win the tournament and he could resign. He could they could win the tournament and he could be fired. It's that sort of controversy and 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 political strife that is surrounding this national team right now. He could walk out. He could walk away and say, you know, I don't want to be part of this. They don't believe in this tournament. Brazil does not believe they should be playing and hosting the Copa America. And so that they're going to go and they're going to play. And every post-game press conference, every pre-game press conference is going to place this, this stress on the players and the manager to either maintain their position against the tournament or start to slowly change it. Uh, and I don't think they're going to change it. And so, you know, the, the Brazilian Football Federation president was ousted due to a sexual harassment, due to sexual harassment allegations. Uh, and I think the guy, I, I, again, I don't know the, the, the person who is in in his place in an interim basis, but I don't think it's anyone that's probably friendly to Brazil's head coach, Tite, uh, at the moment. You know, he was kind of at odds already with the Confederation, with the Federation president. So there's just so much surrounding that national team that regardless of their results, regardless of how good they are, his future is completely in doubt. Um, from a poor performance perspective, like I mentioned, I think you're looking at Peru's coach who, you know, I, I, he's a very good, very good high, and, and highly respected coach in South America. And it's like, he's doing his best to get Peru back to a respectable level in South America. It gets to a point where you can do no more and you need to walk away. So I think Ricardo Gareca, Peru is going to be under fire, um, and that that's probably it. You know, I think the other coaches are in an okay place. Uh, but look at Brazil. Just keep your eye on Brazil throughout this tournament. And for Argentina, uh, what what do you expect to be their style under Scaloni for people who haven't seen them? What should we kind of be expecting aside from Lionel Messi being prominent? Scaloni, um, I think he's he's wanted to change the way that they play, which was, again, very direct. I think he wants to keep the ball. He has guys like Paredes, the PSG central midfielder, who is so good at all times. Um, it, it really like dictating tempo. And I think last night against Colombia, you saw a little bit of that. They, they want to ping teams. They want to possess. They want to keep the ball. Not in a boring, unpurposeful way of possession, but they do want to just lull you and make you chase. And then at the and then they have players like uh, Lartaro Martinez and, and 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 Acuna who's on the wing, uh, Lionel Messi obviously that if you fall asleep they'll just they'll you know they can play right through you as well. So the midfield is really key to the way Scaloni wants our Argentina to play. Um, it, it's just not always come together, uh, and that's the criticism that he's facing right now. You know, he said last night it felt like sort of a a frustrated way of saying it. He said, we should have won every single game that we've played in, in the qualifiers. Like they were, they've, they've been the better team each game, but you know, soccer isn't like that all the time. You can be the best team and you're not getting the results. So, um, you know, they, they aren't, they, I felt like they were really wide open though against Columbia, which was interesting. They were up to nothing and they were really still on the front foot and they, and Columbia just started to counter, on them in, in tons of space on the wing. So I think they're still trying to find that balance. It's for the neutral. I think Argentina is, is still a fun team to watch because I think they want to put teams away. They're just trying to figure out how to do it. 
And you mentioned they also want to get a little bit younger. Uh, if they are trying to go with that approach, trying to build around some younger players, who do you think those are most likely to be? Well, you look at Lo Celso, who's a, a very good lefty. You know, he was, he, you know, the Tottenham midfielder uh, at the time. He, he's good. He's been thrown into the fray. You know, they have a bit of a, a, diff, a goalkeeping issue as well. They were very reliant on Franco Armani, Armani, who is a veteran goalkeeper for River Plate for the last few years, considered the best goalkeeper in South America. They've since switched to Emmy Martinez. Uh, who is moving to Aston Villa, I believe, or, you know, he, he's a very good goalkeeper, younger goalkeeper. So I think uh, across their lines, it's not that they're going a full youth movement here. Um, the, Argentina's traditionally always been a veteran laden squad, but I think you, you are seeing certain players come in. You know, it, it's not enough to just rattle off a bunch of U22, U23 players that are in the squad because I still think they rely heavily on their established stars. Uh, I just think there are a few positions in the back line um, that perhaps you see some some unknown players. Uh, they're Montiel, their right back, is a former River Plate uh, right back who who kind of you know came into his own throughout the last few ver- ed- editions of the Copa Libertadores. You know, not a a, a well known right back, very good though. Uh, so it is a combination. I don't think it's a full on youth movement just yet because you still are relying again heavily on a player like Lionel Messi. Uh, and you know, I would mention Lautaro Martinez. Like he's not, you know, he's a young player. You know, he's just very good, and he's playing for you know Inter Milan, who just won Serie A. But you know, he's not this. He's not a player with over a hundred caps. You know, so I think to me, Lautaro Martinez is one of those players that is part of this, you know, push to sort of start to integrate a new collection of players within the national team. I think it was Emmy Martinez playing for Villa last season. Emmy Buendia or Emiliano Buendia is the one joining them this season because I think I saw that like now. Uh, Aston Villa will have like two thirds of all the Emilianos to play for Argentina. It's something like that, I think. So that's the, that's the approach that, uh, Villa are going for. Uh, what, what is the approach that, uh, uh, Colombia will be going for without James Rodriguez, without Radamo Falcao, but then they are getting results. They get the 3-0 win over Peru and then the 2-2 draw with Argentina. So how are you expecting them to go? Who are going to be their key players? Yeah, I mean, Juan, Juan Cuadrado, who plays for Juventus, and mm. if I'm not mistaken, I, I'm pretty sure he led the Champions League in assists. And I think he was Juventus' leading assist man as well. Now he is, um, I think he's leading Coma Bowl and World Cup qualifying with assists. So he's like this all-purpose player that in Colombia, it, it's being talked about like he's kind of taking over the 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 leadership role that Hamas previously had the leadership role that Falcao previously had uh, last night it was his assist that that turned into the equalizer the the ninety fourth ninety fifth minute equalizer against Argentina uh, so he's key you know Juan Cuadrado from Juventus is going to be key to this Colombian side you know the rest is are for people that have followed Colombia and seen them seen them at the last World Cups they're going to be very familiar faces their back line Jeremina Davinson Sanchez uh, David Ospina is still the goalkeeper uh, for from Liga MX they have a quite a few quite a few players from Liga MX Stefan Medina from Monterrey uh, Tecillo from Leon who are their two fullbacks uh, and then the midfield is really made up of, again, it's not a lot of young players. It's not a lot of unproven players. I think Colombia is still 
heavily dependent on this generation that for many was their best generation, the team that went to the quarterfinals at the 2014 World Cup. It's a lot of those same players. Uh, and so they're, they're in a place, I think, in Colombia that it's like it's now or never for them. It really is for this group of players. This is one, I think they're perhaps their last opportunity to win a trophy, which is the consistent strike against them, against Thomas Rodriguez and Falcao uh, and Wilmar Barrios, uh, all these guys that have, that really showed up in the last two world cups, Jerry Mina, of course, like I already mentioned, but they haven't won anything yet. And so the pressure is on them in Colombia to do something, you know, regardless of the situation that the Copa America is in, you're still going to show up and play. It's still a very important trophy for South American teams. And so in my opinion, before Colombia can move on from this generation of players, they need to win something. And this is, I think, in my opinion, their last shot. Not necessarily from a winning the competition standpoint, but just from a reliance on veterans standpoint, would you put Peru and Chile in that same category? Because looking at their potential rosters, it does seem to be a lot of the same very familiar faces, a lot of whom are now in their early to mid to sometimes late 30s. Yes. And I think you're getting to a perhaps a deeper issue in South America in general, which is this dearth of talent. Yes, it's a very talented region. It always will be. But they're not exporting the number of players to big time leagues like they used to before. It was like one after another from Argentina, jumping to Syria, jumping from you know, Argentina to England to Spain. And that's just not happening as much. Uh, and that's a, that's another separate issue, I think, as far as talent development in Argentina. I remember speaking to Gonzalo Higuain's father for a story I wrote for The Athletic. And it was one of the things that he told me. He's like, I drive around, I go to the, you know, the youth games and the, the level is not the way it was back in the day where every big European club was here in Argentina fishing for players. You don't see them. You don't see those guys here anymore. Uh, the same for in, in Colombia, which traditionally uh, I think they, ex- they do export a lot of players, but you know, the local leagues aren't as good. And, and sometimes you've got these 17, 18 year olds, as soon as they show any sign of potential, boom, they're picked up and they're not developed yet. So I think that's part of the reason why so many national teams in South America are still so reliant on this old guard. Uh, and, and let's be honest, they did not play well in the 2018 World Cup, South, you know, the South American teams. They were, it became an all European tournament at, very early on. And, and, and that was a big strike against Comable and, and the development process in South America. So to your point, Chile, Peru, uh, you know, they, they do have a lot of the same old faces. I think they start to, you, you, they sprinkle in a few young players, but overall, you know, still very dependent on their their previously established player. Like, you know, Chile, Alexis Sanchez is still the guy. You know, Arturo Vidal, I think he's out due to COVID. He has a, he had a serious case of COVID. He was hospitalized um, up until last week, I believe. I don't know what his situation is. I think they're being very private with it, but he was in the hospital um, with a serious case of COVID. So I don't think Arturo Vidal is going to play for Chile as well. Uh, but again, it's kind of a bigger picture that about talent development in South America, which is starting to affect their national teams. 
Can, can we delve deeper into that big picture for a moment? Because I, like I, that makes a lot of sense, but then I'm fascinated about like the all of the different possibilities for why that talent development, that talent uh, talent identification, has dried up a bit. Is it just that like like there's been too many young players taken? Have we like removed all the natural resources and now we have to wait a while for like the population to come back? I don't know why I'm talking about it in relation to like the way we talk about crab and fish populations, but that's the best way I can understand it is like, is it, has it been like overly recruited, overly developed or, or are there other factors that I'm not getting? Uh, there are probably other factors. I mean, I go back to the conversation with Gonzalo Higuain's father and he told me he would go and visit Federico Higuain here in the United States in Ohio. Okay. When Federico Higuain was playing for the Columbus crew, he told me I would go and visit my, my son and my grandkids and he would, drive around Ohio and like watch his grandkids play, you know, club soccer. And he was like, wow, look at this. Look at these kids play. Look at the technical ability of these kids at such a young age, the coaching that they're getting. He's like, we don't have that in Argentina right now. Uh, so that, I think that speaks volumes of what the U S development system is, how heavily criticized it is here in the States, whether it's inclusive enough, whether it's good enough, but clearly the infrastructure is in place in a country like the U S like it should be considering the resources in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, countries in South America, while the talent is just everywhere, you know, kids at an early age are already very skilled, very technical, uh, the, the development process, getting them to the, to the professional level, developing them, nurturing them, uh, even the, the, the agent side of the sport, making sure that they're well advised and counseled. Those are all things that don't always happen in South America. And they, they kind of conflict against each other. A lot of money being passed around representatives and agents to get players to Europe, perhaps when they're not ready. And so, uh, I, I really do think it's like an infrastructure problem in South America. It's not a talent problem. I think it's the talent is there. It's how do you develop it? How do you, how do you make your local leagues better? You know, look at the Copa Libertadores. It's like some of the biggest teams in South America are not getting through. They're playing the Copa Sudamericana, which is like the Europa League. They're not advancing like they do traditionally. The Copa Libertadores isn't now a tournament with, every big club from South America. Some of these clubs are struggling. And so it, it's, it's a big picture problem for sure. Taylor, I think it's, it's one that they're trying to solve, but it's just not, you don't hit a switch and solve it. Final question for you. We've talked about a lot of the issues and the problems facing uh, South American soccer, facing common Bowl, facing some of these national teams. Who do you think is in the best position from a, managerial from a federation and then from a player standpoint heading into this competition. It seems like based on what we've talked about, it will be Uruguay, but I can't tell if that's just because we haven't talked about them in as much detail as we've talked about other teams. I mean, again, that, that's a difficult question to answer. Like, it's like you want to say Brazil just because of the talent, but I think we've covered all the reasons why they're going to be under so much pressure you know, throughout this tournament, Uruguay is an interesting one to to prop up because you know they haven't changed anything for so many years. They still have you know El Maestro, you know Oscar Tavares, seventy four, seventy five year old head coach, uh, who is just so well respected. You know, a, a, a true teacher of the game, uh, still at the head of their you know on their on their touchline. 
and and they've still yet they've managed to bring in new players, younger players, uh, recruit well, develop well. That speaks a lot of just like the Uruguayan football culture. Uh, you know, I, I remember when Uruguay played the United States in St. Louis a few summers ago, and I was there. Uh, I, I asked him about a player, for instance, like Federico Valverde, who plays for Real Madrid, a young midfielder who is already among the best midfielders, in my opinion, in the world, kind of under the radar, nothing flashy, just very well, you know, well-groomed and, and a very technical player. And, you know, something that he told me was like, the reason why a player like Federico Valverde can be, you know, under, I think he was 20, 21 at the time. Uh, can can already be part a big part of the national team is because and this is Oscar Tabares. He said because I've known him since he was thirteen. I've seen him since oh, he wow. was thirteen. It's like it speaks volumes of the way that federation manages youth players, how they integrate them into the system, how they get them into the first team. Uh, you know th- that I think is just has to be respected and pointed out from. Every level. And so I think you're right. Uruguay is probably, they're in a great place. They still have, they're still relying on, you know, Lucho Suarez, Luis Suarez, you know, in his thirties, Edison Cavani. But have you seen what those guys are doing at the professional level? It's like, you know, Cavani is just dominating for, uh, for Man U. They're lucky to have him, honestly. Uh, Luis Suarez, who was pushed out the door at Barcelona then wins the league, wins La Liga and scores, I think, 20, 21 goals for Atletico Madrid. So there's still guys that get it done. And then you have kind of like this younger generation, young midfield, you know, in their 20, 25, 26 age, a little bit younger. You know, you still have Godin, you know, in the, in the back line, a, a guy that, you know, you just no one wants to face. So it's like it's just a great balance of youth uh, experience and uh, and culture all in one. I think you've talked me into it. I think I, I'm leaning Uruguay for this one. I look at that squad. I look at the experience they do have. Fernando Muslera will always be there for forever. I hope he's starting for them 15 one years from now. Goalkeepers. It, I mean, such a great goalkeeper. If you yep. look at him, if you're in a if you're a goalkeeper enthusiast, um, watch him play. Watch him play. Watch his technique. Watch the, everything from his goal kicks to the way he, he you know, he tosses the ball, the way he, he switches hands on, on in difficult saves, uh, the way he reads the play. I mean, Muslera is is one of the best goalkeepers in in the world, in my opinion. I, I honestly, I don't disagree with you. I think it's just that he's been with Galatasaray for as yeah. long as he has. There yeah. were other op- opportunities. I think he just really likes playing in Istanbul. Uh, mm-hmm. And they let him take a penalty once. So I think that probably also is is an important part of it for him. He got the one goal, so why not stay there? But yeah, I'm excited for Muslera. I'm excited for Uruguay. I'm excited for the Copa America. Felipe, for you, what are you going to be doing for this competition? What are your obligations when it comes to covering it for the athletic so yeah, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, I'll definitely be covering the Copa America. I don't think it's it's as uh, this extensive sort of coverage. Uh, you know, I won't be traveling, obviously, uh, but I'll be involved. I'll be watching every game. Uh, perhaps I'll be writing on on I think the bigger the bigger stories throughout the tournament, the way I've done leading up to the tournament. If if you're a subscriber of the of the Athletic, you've you've seen the sort of stories that I've reported on. What has happened in Colombia? What has happened in Argentina? Why is this tournament being played in Brazil? Are all stories that I've already reported on? So I think I'll continue to do that. You know, hopefully I'll be back on the Total Soccer Show as well, talking about what's going on in the tournament. 
I would say that is a definite possibility and a and a hopeful possibility for me. But for now, Felipe, thank you again. As always, I know you've got other things to do, other uh, appearances to make, but I appreciate you taking the time to help make sense of the Copa America. Anytime, Taylor. Anytime. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. We'll talk to you all again very, very soon because I think we've got at least two more shows coming out this week. Three more shows this week uh, from us at the Total Soccer Show. I'm going to go take a breather until those happen. But for now, thank you all again for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.